Hey, Chris Baker here from Zen Studios and Superhero.vg on YouTube. I was looking for the Fake Dudes podcast, but I guess these guys will have to do. Welcome everybody to the Real Dudes Podcast. My name's Donovan, and here with me is Carrington. Hey, hey, hey. I gotta say, it's kind of weird to have you introduce the show, Donovan. This is your first time doing that. It is, it is. And today on the list, we have uh, some pretty interesting things to talk about in the world hey, wait, of wait, indie wait, gaming. Wait, wait, hold up. Hmm. I know you want to talk about indie games, but I think I can like step it up a notch and I can invite a guest. Well, be my guest. Who is All it? Right. I, I don't know my powers. I can't usually, you know, control who comes in. So we'll see what happens. All right. All right. Here we go. Why, hello, Luke. How are you? I, I Y'all know. have a pastrami and rye. Wait, what wait, the wait. hell? Where am I? What is this place? Oh, my God. It's been well, a quantum, I, quantum distortion. I, I Sorry um, about that, uh, everyone. Luke. Uh, no. Uh, so uh, my name's Carrington. Uh, my brother. Universe. Yeah, Don, my brother Donovan here. We, we we own a podcast. Sorry to just kind of force you in, but we actually talk about indie games a lot. We we heard on the oh, I've got one. Vine. Yeah, we've heard you got one. <laughs> Donovan, why don't you uh, introduce our yeah. guest a little bit more? Yeah. So, uh, Luke from Green Tree Games, how's it going? It's going groovy, except my pastrami is going to get cold now. But so I hope this conversation is good. You guys seem fun. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll try to keep it fun and light. <laughs> So I hear you've been working on one of those indie games of yours. Yeah, well, it's got its own uh, superpowers. You know, guys aren't the only one who's cool. So the superpower of my game's called Burden the Command is to transport you into the past. But we don't transport you just into any old past. We prefer a violent, stressful, heart-rending one, because who doesn't? Uh, namely, we take you back to uh, World War II. And I'm, of course, being a little facetious, but a little more soberly, really, we try to. So... Burden Command, in a nutshell, is a leadership RPG, and its goal is to put you in the boots on the ground of an infantry commander in World War II. And we try and actually place you in specific history of a real regiment, real, and your company's in that real regiment. We follow the real history. We have an advising historian, but our focus is the emotion, the psychology, the tactics of leadership. Wow, that's a mouthful right there. <laughs> Oh and, of God. course, random death. Everybody wants that. Well, I mean, you can't have uh, a little bit of World War II without a little bit of randomness. Exactly. <laughs> One thing we do a little different, though, there's a lot of random death out there. You know, Call of Duty, which is, of course, viscerally amazing. Uh, on the mm -hmm. other hand, it kind of blows it away a little bit when, strangely enough, suddenly you just reload. Oh, I'm dead. Oh, my God, random death. Oh, reload. And it's irritating because I have to wait five or ten seconds for the reload. <laughs> you know, yeah, you don't reload. so you send the guys up the hill they die so we're ready if you want to put it in game mechanics terms it's permadeath or roguelike so i hope instantly you see burden command meaning you know you send guys up the hill they may not come back so you sure you want to send them up the hill wow okay so it's not like you know your squad dies or perhaps even the commander dies and that's it you reload to an earlier state it's do you continue on Think of it as Darkest Dungeon World War II. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We can. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's now obviously there's so many smart folks out there they could defeat us, but the spirit of it is to prevent you from reload, because you know there's no reload in real war, and that's what we're drawing on. We have a lot of vets in the team uh, from man, many services across the globe, more U.S. because we're a U.S. company, but uh, we've got Australians and uh, Europeans, and the vets are on board because they think we're trying to do a credible effort. Uh, in terms of what the real experience was like, luckily not too credible. Or who would want who would want that? But, yeah. <laughs> uh, we try we we try to give you some sense of the burden, and the burden is you're responsible for lives, right? So, and we'll it's a role playing game because we have NPCs and they develop uh, characters, and we hope we try very hard to make you interested in them and empathetic, so it's no longer send that pixel or sprite up the hill. Let's actually send Lieutenant Dearborn, who you've grown to love and hate or whatever, uh, up the hill. Yeah. All right. And then so about how many is on your team at this point in time? Well, we're very we're pretty much all about facade. So uh, <laughs> as a joke. So, I, you know, my father is a history professor, so I love his history analogies. You'll probably have to stop me talking history. But uh, one of the Russian czars had a Potemkin village, which was a fake village, looked much bigger than it was. And they would take guests by to make them show how wonderfully they're treating the peasants. So my Potemkin village, if you go to burdenthecommand.com and you look at our team, my God, look at them. What is it? I don't know what it is, 15 people up there. Uh, but reality is we're a small indie. Uh, behind the Potemkin village facade, it's effectively about three full-time employees, uh, of which a good percentage of that is volunteer. So basically translate all that. You know, we're a bunch of folks most not working full-time, I do, uh, and they're con you know, contributing their aft hours, so forth. For instance, our playtesting lead is a full-time ar army major, so he's rather busy, So, but he does take you know, three to five hours a week supporting us, so that kind of thing. So it adds up. All right. But, but we are small, and you know, help us. Go wish list us. We need help. We don't want to starve. Well, there you go. <laughs> On Steam, everybody. That's right. Man. My work here is done. <laughs> so, uh, so your interest in history is that what inspired the game, or? Well, that's a good question. So, there's like broad personal reasons I am inspired, and then there's specific. Which do you want first? Hmm, that's a good question. What have you choose? Let's keep it dynamic. All right. Well, I'll start. I'll start uh, with a specific. So, I knew I wanted to do a uh, squad level game. For those who play board games, there's a game that inspired a lot of. Uh, digital games, eventually even Darkest Dungeon, if you can believe that, called Squad Leader back in the day. And that was a counter-based cardboard, run squads and leaders around. And since then, there have been uh, various efforts along those lines, like Steel Panthers some years back. You could argue the Steel Division out there is a little bit like that. There haven't been tons of digital squad games. But anyway, I wanted to do something like that. I was thinking, oh, I'll do kind of a Panzer General uh, squad level. I mean, a squad's about 10 to 12 people. You know, run by, and they make a platoon about three squads, and that's run by a lieutenant, just to give a little military. So I, but one night I was playing Crusader Kings 2, which is, you know, simulate medieval Europe and backstab everybody possible so your family becomes powerful. Sounds right. like a lot of our modern politics. Uh, and why I was suddenly hit me, you know, what if I followed a family of officers, so to speak, across Europe? Wouldn't that be intense? So if you want to put it a different way, kind of band of brothers which is a deep inspiration for us. So that was my yeah. inspiration. And after that, I really started focusing on the human side, the people involved, the leadership, your band of brother officers, and uh, went from there. 
my my larger inspiration is you know my dad was an historian he was also a world war ii vet served in the pacific uh, my wife's actually a former air force vet i have a son in active service and uh you know there's a lot of military connections so i was always interested in the military i was always interested in history and military history and then I was always interested in leadership. So I've had leadership positions and various roles. I've done a startup before and so forth. So I've always thought about it a lot over the years. And then finally, I've always loved games like anybody, you know, in this podcast, listening to this podcast, surely. And so uh, it was a natural flow. Hey, my God, I can do a military history game, but focused on people and leadership. There you go. Band All of right. brothers. <laughs> and so uh, we had a couple other games. And then I also saw that uh, some of the other games that inspired Burden of Command was also a little bit of XCOM as well. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. So some analogous games. So on the tactical level, we're like XCOM, though I think there's some interesting differences. But, you know, who, who doesn't want to be somewhat like XCOM? Uh, right. mm-hmm. On the psychological side, I mean, on the narrative side, some of you may be familiar with uh, Hairbrain Schemes Shadowrun, or there's another indie game, Banner Saga. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure with a decent number of visuals in those games, uh, coupled to tactical engines. And we're the same way. So at some points, you're in a you know Banner Saga-like, uh, or really almost any RPG, you know, choices come up, you read text, you see some pictures. For instance, you know, the sergeant comes to you and says, we've got a problem with, this is not in a battle, let's say. You know, we've got okay. a problem with Johnson. He's, he's drunk and he had a fight with him, whatever, you know, problems that a captain or officer would deal with. And we draw them from history. So on the one hand, you're dealing with that narrative side. You know, our Dearborn is starting to crack from the pressure. How are you going to handle that? Uh, on the other hand, the decisions you made in that narrative level may inf- inform your XCOM-like tactical play, right? So maybe because of decisions you made, maybe you didn't let Dearborn go on leave, uh, Lieutenant Dearborn. And so he's more stressed. So when you get to the battle in Italy, uh, we follow the historical path of our cotton balers, which regiment we follow and they went to Italy. You know, maybe Dearborn will perform less well on the field because you didn't give them that break. On the other hand, maybe uh, you, Donovan, uh, on the other hand, let Dearborn have, uh, you know, time off back in Naples. And unfortunately, that means Dearborn isn't present for the battle and you have a greenhorn lieutenant and maybe it doesn't go well so, for you. So my point is, you know, there's no easy decision if you're doing it right. And your narrative decisions make a difference to what happens on the battlefield. And I'll say a few more seconds on that and then, you know, let you go to more questions. But I could say a lot about the tactical game. But another example, you know, you're doing things that make the uh, your lieutenants or your men not trust you. Well, you know, in the narrative, you make certain decisions, make them feel like you don't give a about them. Maybe you just give a about your career. But maybe you made that decision to please your superior so you could get the research. The, the resources, the tank support artillery you needed for the next battle. But to them, you look untrustworthy. So now you're on the battlefield and you order them to charge, you know, charge that machine gun. Well, maybe they're thinking, well, this is the, the I won't use an expletive, this is a jerk, you know, yeah. <laughs> to use a more fruity term. This is a jerk uh, that, you know, didn't give a damn about me back at camp. So what the hell, you know, sure, officer, I'll make a little gesture, but why don't you just run ahead? You know, and we can all channel Vietnam. World War II, luckily, was uh, not usually that way. But I hope you're getting the tension between narrative decisions, which are never clear cut, and then the tactical play. And then how difficult was that to figure out some of these uh, narrative decisions that 
aren't as clear cut as perhaps like some other games do where it's really clear like oh this is obviously the bad choice and this is obviously the good choice well you know uh one of my leadership principles is when you come to different difficult problem cheat <laughs> so uh so uh what i mean by that is well when i started the project and i knew i wanted the narrative and the writing side i thought well i'm not a writer i tried that early on it's way too hard so uh i i look for good writers and uh, there's a whole group of people out there do interactive fiction games you may recognize uh, games like 80 days is a famous one uh there's one about going around the ocean i'm blanking on right now or into space but they're a lot, they're quite successful surprisingly like uh 80 days those pretty much text and pictures have like eight hundred thousand buyers if you can believe it anyway there's a whole company called two choice of games and uh, they produce all kinds of games. You'll know, be Gladiator or a Spaceman or a Wizard or whatever. And uh, some of their writers, I noticed, did some military history-oriented things. One of them was Alan Gies. Another one uh, was Paul Wang. And you can look them up on the team page for Nick Command. And they had successful careers with good uh, ratings on Steam and choice of games. So that's my cheat, right? Why don't I go find people who already know how to put together an interesting narrative? military oriented and somewhat leadership decisions uh and paul for instance pretty sadistic so he's really great <laughs> for us uh, <laughs> so that's my first cheat my second cheat was uh history so i'll, I'll give you guys an example of this basically truth is usually stranger than fiction i'm going to put you guys on point here we're going to see what kind of officers you are all so, right okay all right so here's the situation i'm approximating it it is from history by the way uh so so you're, uh, there's just been an artillery barrage. You're the lieutenant there, and uh, it's ongoing. You know, the explosions are landing on the enemy, and you look to your left, and there's uh, your sergeant. And what the heck? The sergeant's up, and he's starting to motion the men forward. Well, this is a disaster because, you know, they're going to run the men out into artillery barrage. You could get a lot of friendly fire death. So uh, the other thing that's starting to freak you out is the sergeant's you know, you start seeing a hey, stop or whatever, and the sergeant's rifle's starting to raise a little bit in your direction. I mean, what the hell? Is this guy drunk? What's going on? You don't have much time. So now we pop the decisions. And uh, one of the decisions is, well, you know, uh, you could you could order him to stand down. Another one is you could reason with him, sergeant, the artillery. Another one is you could, well, you could shoot him. I mean, what do you want to do? So what do you, what do you guys want to do? Wow. I would take. You've got at least ten seconds, so go for it. All right, I'll, I'll take. I'll try to reason with the sergeant first. All right. How about you? Your what was your brother going to do? I would. I would order him to to stand down. Well, congratulations. You guys pick what everybody I've ever asked uh, offers as choices, and the real and the answer, not the right answer, but the actual answer from history is lieutenant involved shot him dead. Really? And, and just to blow you away, guess who that uh, lieutenant was? Have either of you seen Band of Brothers? Yes. Yeah. Lieutenant Spears. Remember the zealous yeah, yes. guy? Yeah, that, that was uh, surprised me now. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. If I had told you Spears, you would have instantly picked that choice. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because I was but like, actually, I was thinking, really like, oh, man, that sounds it. like a Spears thing to do. He really did do it. He was actually put up for court-martial, but they never did court-martial. And this was before Band of Brothers, I believe. I made the history slightly off, but I have the history roughly right. And uh, he actually, uh, they didn't do the court-martial because they ruled it as justified. And, uh, you know, the first person I ever put that to uh, was Chris Avalon, the famous game writer who gave us advice early on. 
And he also, like you guys, didn't, even though he's famous for difficult decisions, didn't pick that one. So my point is, I don't have to look hard for strange, interesting decisions because history is full of them. If you watch our first teaser, there's another insanely unbelievable one. So that's about a two-minute one. You can find it by searching for us on YouTube or on the website. Notice my careful, constant indie promotion because, you know, we want to survive. But um, of command on YouTube. Yeah, you heard it here, here. Go check, click the link. Anyway, uh, if you watch that, there's a moment where they talk about uh, the gist of the decision is there's a sniper. This happened in a town in Italy, and he's taking shots. Men are dying, and you got to figure out what to do because nobody can spot him. So I forget how we do it as a decision, and we may or may not have any game, but it is a real historical one. So this insane, insane lieutenant colonel, um, you know what he does? He steps out into the open in the middle of the street to draw the fire of the sniper so that, so that the other guys can see where the sniper is. <laughs> and so then they nailed the sniper with a bazooka shot because, of course, he could. And luckily, he didn't get shot dead, but he certainly could have been. Now, who would believe that anybody would make that insanely, arguably somewhat stupid, but, you know, effective decision? Well, he did. So basically, yeah. uh, those are my cheats. One is to use quality people. And we also have a lot of vets that advise us. And we also have people like Chris Avalon. We also have Alexis Kennedy, who uh, is a very a well-known indie writer. And other folks, go look at the list again, to help us craft better decisions. So, you know, we'll fall short. But we do have a lot of smart people helping us to improve. Yeah, yeah it sounds like you got a strong team going there. My it goodness. is. I, that I will commit to. So, yeah. And then... Uh, as you start to develop Burden of Command, what were some of the challenges that you had just trying to, let's say, even get a tech demo together? Well, you know, uh, many challenges. I think the core challenge, uh, somebody said early on, I think rightly when watching teaser, well, this is an interesting idea, but it looks a little overly ambitious. So I'm going to <laughs> watch it with some skepticism. It strikes me as a smart person in retrospect. I think the first challenge was overly ambitious. Um, we missed our date and we were supposed to hit 2018 because I was a greenhorn lieutenant, you know, and I had people advise me, don't ever, ever put a date in. These <laughs> are, I said, oh no, no, I know what I'm doing here. I know what I'm doing. So, of course, I didn't. Uh, so, first, too ambitious because, you know, we have a narrative engine, uh, we have a lot of drawn history, we have a sophisticated tactical engine, which is really trying to recreate some of the battlefield psychology, which might be an interesting topic. And uh, putting that all together, uh, plus just getting the background history right, is hard. So, and we're small. So compared to somebody like the team that did Shadowrun, you know, that's a dramatically more bigger team than us. So I think first problem was overambition. That being said, uh, I could go through a lot of challenges. Let me see if I can pick out some interesting ones. Uh, first, it was deciding what the hell uh, the leadership game core was. Uh, so my background is Silicon Valley in California, and I used to work in um, startup venture capital, technology, R&D. And one of the things you learn is it's what's called the elevator pitch, which is right. you know, if you're trying to get money, you better be able to say the pitch for the startup in the elevator. So my first challenge, honestly, before I even brought team on, was to refine the, the elevator pitch. So just to, I'm going to put you guys on the spot all the time so I don't have to be smart. So what okay. one word do you think would describe this game? Let's see if I've succeeded. What one word would describe this game? Visceral. Oh, I like you. 
Uh, the word I wanted, though, was leadership. So in essence, this game is about leadership. If I give you one more word, it's a leadership to, a phrase, leadership RPG. If I want to give you a slightly longer one, emotionally authentic leadership RPG. So the first challenge was boiling it down to that degree so that we could understand what the narrative was going to be about, what the tactical was going to be about, and what the core of the game was going to be about. So the narrative, for instance, how does that play out? So one thing is, you know, we don't model every soldier individually and give them all names. That's mm -hmm. I respect that. Uh, some games like uh, the classic, uh, what's it called, Close Combat do that. But Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Right. So we want to focus you, right? So we give you four or five um, lieutenants and uh, one or two enlisted. Because how can you develop emotional bonding easily in a game spans time, you know, with 30 or 40 guys? Too hard. So yeah. why yeah. do we do that? Because we knew it was a leadership game. We knew we wanted to be emotionally authentic. And if you don't give a damn about them, then it won't be emotionally authentic. So therefore, we've got to focus, keep a limited number of characters, and really have the writers work on empathy. So give you one example on that. Then I, I could go on, but I don't want to drone on. So I'll give you one example here. Okay. So we yeah. knew we wanted to be emotionally authentic, you know, leadership game about people. So therefore, I was early on because I, you know, worked with them and myself to get it honed down. I knew, well, if you're not going to care if you don't have empathy. So I spent a lot of time focusing empathy. I went to Chris Avalon. He was sort of in between just starting up his own, being an independent uh, writer. And so I was very fortunate to get him then. And, you know, I asked him that question. How do we create empathy? And I'll give you an example of a trick he uses. It's a really cool trick. So right. he says uh, he watches, you know, people playing one of his fantasy RPGs or sci-fi. He's doing a Star Wars one now, as you probably realize. And he'd watch them. And so, you know, they the real players are sitting there and they and there's some little like the old uh uh let's see um there there's you know their little gnome was really irritating and uh, he notices the gnome keeps making dumb jokes and it's a, a computer gnome and so the real players start saying oh man you know that gnome is so annoying so chris avalon writes down Right there, oh, you know, it's just about when I got to the third scene, I started to, a lot of people say he's really annoying. But then he goes back, takes one of your other player characters, say a female uh, bard or something, and in scene two, not scene three, has her say, you know, Gnome, you are really annoying, right? Because then the player says, oh, my God, I so agree. That Gnome is annoying. And you just created a bonding moment between the female bard and you, right? Because... Nice little trick. We similarly went to William Bernhardt, who's a guy who's written uh, books with 10 million, uh, you know, sold 10 million copies. And we asked him, how do you create empathy? And he wrote, he's written books about that, because how can you write a good novel if you can't figure that out? So I could go on, but my point here is the first challenge was to burn the game down to the core and then start building up from that to solve challenges like what would the narrative focus on, how many NPCs would be. And we did the same thing for the tactical engine. All right. And then so uh, I am really interested because I've heard it mentioned a few times is the tactical engine. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, the tactical engine absolutely was inspired by XCOM in part, which has a brilliance and its simplicity of design and focus. Also by some of the earlier uh, historical games like the squad leaders and so forth. that had some mechanics. Mm -hmm. But I spent a lot of time. One way to be creative. Another cheat. So my responsibility in my career has often been to help myself and others. Like I said, I ran an R&D lab to be creative. Is go out, go to primary materials, 
which is a fancy way to say, hey, you want to understand the battlefield? Well, why don't you go back and read some accounts, right? So I read a lot of accounts from leaders, like there's a famous one, company commander, sorry about that, uh, about his experience in World War II, read a lot of those. Then I read some secondary literature about what it was like, and then I started from that. How can I design a game that focuses on what I understand to be the realities of the battlefield rather than, oh, let me try to just imitate game three. Or what if I take game three and twist it this way? I mean, you know, you can get some things from that. But if you start from a different place, so I started from the real battlefield, you can be creative. So I think we're doing something distinctive. Whether it will be compelling, you'll have to decide. So why is this battlefield mechanics distinctive? Let me give you an example. Right. So, you know, uh, XCOM gets this a little bit, by the way. But, you know, mostly when you order units in tactical games, they do what you want, mm -hmm. right? Including right. running to their death if you so ordered. They're basically bots. Uh, but real men aren't bots. So if you order real men to go assault a position, uh, you know, it's very hard to put statistics on this, but about 20, 30% of the time, they'll do it of their own volition. Because really, who wants a bayonet in the stomach? Uh, it's pretty visceral, pretty animal. Uh, now, if they have somebody they trust decently, it maybe goes up to 40, 50%. Somebody they really quite trust, uh, maybe a senior sergeant or you as a lieutenant, uh, might go up to 70%. So my point is, uh, the units in burden to command in critical situations that are stressful or dangerous may disobey you. So they may not actually do the assault. Or another example is if you order units in burden to command to cross a field in the face of an enemy machine gun, they may bulk. Not as much as salt, but it's a semi-suicidal thing to do. So they may not do it. Now, normally they'll follow your orders. When I say disobey your orders, you know, what I mean in, in real world terms is, you know, they make it lip service. Oh, sure, Lieutenant, let's go assault that position. Oh, God, I fell down, you know, 10 feet out, you know, or can't hear you, Sergeant's too loud or whatever. So bottom line is I start from one thing, which is, you know, your, your units are not automaton. They are as much as we can make it people. Secondly, why do people follow leaders? Well, they trust them. Most trust mean, uh, that's a hard one, but my take on it is you've shown you care about them in the narrative game, made certain decisions that were in their welfare, maybe not yours, maybe got your superior pissed at you, but got them a leave. Uh, on the battlefield, are you risking your ass, right? Are you actually out there when you order to do the assault, are you going with them? So in burden command, if your leader uh, you know, goes in the assault and does what's called a bolster action, which is basically to improve their morale, then they have a better chance to go on out of assault. But if you don't go with them, they have a worse chance. Because, you know, well, uh, you know, Lieutenant Luke doesn't give, isn't willing to risk his ass. Why am I risking my ass? Give you a real D-Day story. So they land at Omaha Beach, you know, which comes up in Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody, it was brutal for the Americans. And so actually a lot of the Americans just lying on the beach. Uh, they couldn't get up because the machine gun fire was so devastating. So this leader comes along, and I, I apologize, I can't pull his name in right now. And uh, he, he's standing up on the beach, walking along the beach, and he's saying, uh, you know, there's only two kinds of guys in the, this beach here. And this is while gunfire is going on. The dead and those about to die. Now get off, off your ass and get off, get off this beach. And the guys were so stunned by seeing him standing up in the front face of this fire, kind of like the guy with the sniper that actually got up and followed him. Uh, and a very key moment. Now, interesting, that guy had actually planned those lines before he got to the beach, because he figured it'd be tough. <laughs> so he wasn't coming at the moment, but that's a good leader. So in the game, that means, you know, you want that assault to happen, you better put a leader over there, and a leader better be trusted by those guys. 
So that I can give you more examples. I'll give you one more though, and then I'll stop so you want more. So, <laughs> so most games, what are most combat games? Any fantasy, sci-fi, uh, World War II, it's all the same. Bang, 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 bang. Oh, I killed him at some point, right? Oh, I fire a big mm -hmm. enough weapon or shoot, shoot, shoot. At some point they're dead. Well, that's not the way it really works. In World War II, see, now I'm going back to the primary materials. Mm -hmm. 8,000 shots, bullets, before anybody was even hit. Okay, why was that? Now, I'm talking about small arms here, like rifles, uh, and to some extent, machine guns. Not artillery, that's different. But uh, small arms, people firing rifles. Well, what would you do if I fired a rifle at you and you're standing you know, near a wall? I'm firing my rifle at you. What are you going to do? Hide behind the wall. All right. Well, duh, real soldiers aren't dumb, right? right? So when fire takes place, they hit cover. And you know, it's pretty hard to put a bullet in somebody when they're down behind a wall. And real soldiers are not standing up and precisely aiming because they don't want to die. All right, go play paintball sometime. Watch how people mm -hmm. behave in paintball, and that's no real risk. They don't stand out in the open. They don't want to be hit by that mildly painful pain paintball, so they take little sniping shots. Soldiers are the same, but taking it much more seriously. So in Burden to Command, there's a suppression mechanism. You fire at the enemy, typically you're not hurting them, killing them, typically suppressing them. Why suppression matter? That unit over there, that squad, enemy squad isn't going to do much. The more you suppress it, they're keeping their heads down, their fire gets less effective. You suppress them enough, you can actually run your unit across that field. And when you get close enough, last example of a mechanic, they'll probably surrender. So, you know, most games, oh my God, we'll run across the field and, you know, we get close to them. We'll melee, we'll have a big sword fight and people will die and it'll be tough. Well, nobody really wants a uh, knife in the stomach. So actually what happened is typically if you could get your men to go across the field and they survived going across the field, then the Germans, let's say here, they did one of two things. Typically, they surrendered or they ran because nobody really wants to go into melee. Now, if they were in melee sometimes, if they were relatively rare. So, you know, if you hadn't suppressed them, they probably shot you dead by now. If you did suppress them, they're already in a war psychologically. So you're going to surrender. So I hope that sounds like a, not like a game you've played because I don't think there are many games like that. Uh, and I hope you can see how it's tactical. You should flank, you should suppress the fire, you should bring in your artillery, and you should bring in your machine guns, but you got to do it right, you got to do it realistically, and that leads to different tactics. Donovan would be yeah. more of an expert to answer the question like that. Like, Donovan, have you played a game like that? Because I know I haven't. Uh, the only thing that could even come remotely close is Battlefront's combat mission series. Yes, they, they make it remotely close. In those terms, absolutely. Where we're probably a little different is a little more emphasis on the leadership side. And again, always focusing yeah. on the psychology. They, they probably spend a little more time on armor penetration and bullets and so forth. We're spending a right, little right. more time on well, how are the men handling a situation. I'll give you another example. I don't know if a combat mission does this or not. Uh, I mean, we're not a war game. We're really a role-playing game about uh, people on the battlefield and off. But, for instance, you can see this in the second teaser video, the tactical one. Mm -hmm. So this tank appears in the battlefield. And you'll notice suppression happen to the various uh, men, Americans on the battlefield. But nobody, the tank didn't shoot at him. So what's going on? It's called shock. So, you know, in the real world, you see a tank show up and you don't have a tank. Man, you're, you're not happy. You're probably hitting the ground or you're running because, you know, you have no chance against that tank. Full part. So that's called shock suppression. So burn command when a significant weapon shows up on the other side. Think of it like, you know, the uh, Tolkien troll showing up, except now it's a tiger tank or whatever. Just a normal tank's probably good enough. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody <laughs> takes shock. They take suppression. So suddenly, it, put it a different way, it's like a fireball. 
but a suppression fireball. The tank appears, enemy tank, and all your men who can see it all suddenly took suppression. And now your whole platoon is combat less effective just from seeing the tank. So that's a psychological battlefield, not just a bullets battlefield. So that, everything I'm describing so far is in the game, by the way, so I'm not BSing on this. I'll try to identify when I'm saying things that haven't been done yet. Okay, well, that sounds, I mean, that's intriguing. I've, yeah, I've never heard of any other kind of system. I think Brothers in Arms real time did try to do some of the flanking and so forth, to be fair to them, but I haven't played yeah. it. Can't speak to it. But yeah, in terms of like psychological effects and being suppressed just by seeing something, I mean, I've, I haven't heard of anything or seen anything like that, but I really like that mechanic because if you're really mirroring a true battlefield, it's not, as you said, it's not just about the bullets flying. It's what you see as well and how People your men scared. react to it. People are scared. You know, uh, you know, actually, probably a better analogy in any military game, in my opinion, in many ways, is Darkest Dungeon. Uh, and we were, you know, Tyler, uh, one of the designers, it was real honor early on, followed us on Twitter. So, because I think you could see the connect. I think he even had a little inspiration. He said in one of his talks from Squad Leader. But in Darkest Dungeon, you know, they made a really good observation. Uh, they couldn't go to primary materials, but they could think hard about what it must have been like. And, you know, uh, who wants to go into dungeon with horrible undead, really? And I wonder if that's a little stressful. Mm, probably. Right? So they just started from the premise, this is not a happy moment to go into battlefield. I'm sorry. Huh, good slip. Uh, it's not a happy <laughs> moment to go into dungeon. Similarly, it's not a happy moment to go into battlefield. And uh, the studies from World War II and modern and so forth say, you know, it's only a matter of time before everybody cracks. Uh, you can be as tough as you want, but given enough exposure, you will eventually, you know, get what we call PTSD. Um, they call the uh, combat fatigue, World War I called shell shock. So in some sense, I hope I'm making this sound like a happy game so far. Uh, they, you were, Darkest Dungeon's probably better uh, thing than than arguably XCOM. But when we do a little different Darkest Dungeons, we do worry about things like, you know, dis, uh, flanking and distance. They, they have a really interesting, you know, side view. We still have a map uh, where what direction you're coming from, a little more classically tactical like XCOM. All right. And then uh, so for each of your battlefields as it goes through uh, their time uh, in the war, so are the maps procedurally generated or are they handcrafted to reflect an actual historical battlefield? Oh, now you've, now you've, now you've cut, cut deep. Uh, the, <laughs> the reality is that, no, I don't know if I should apologize too much. This one is narratively focused like a, like a, um, you know, Shadowrun uh, or Banner Saga or, or many classic RPGs, meaning it's linear, meaning, you know, your company is not going to change World War II. On the other hand, you will go through real situations. You can screw up. Things will, you can win or lose battles. You'll typically go on because you know what? They typically did go on. Now, if you keep losing constantly, yeah, you'll get relieved eventually. But uh, it's not one of those games where, oh, I lost scenario three. It's all over. You lost scenario three. Superiors are not happy. Uh, but there'll be various things we'll do to adjust for that based on what really happened. So it is not procedurally generated. Um, and it, But it is... Uh, Fair, which I'm trying for a fair amount of chaos, which is a is a, a nice, prettified way to say R and D, you know, random. Which means, hey, right. you know, uh, you order the guys to go across the, the field, like you gave you example. That's a probability roll, just like a to hit, and you may fail the probability to hit. So there'll be moments like you're screaming at the computer, "Why didn't my 95% XCOM shot hit?" 
to the guy next to me. You'll be screaming at the equivalent. Why didn't my 95% with my best leader with total trust, why did they not follow him? You know, and I'm screwed. So, and also the writers are putting in random events. So we gave an example a week or two ago, you know, where heat stroke happens and suddenly a unit you're counting on, you know, it's just not available at this moment. Uh, and we'll have many more of those again, where we can based on history. And then just, there's some classic things from these kind of games, like, you know, uh, this now, this isn't in the game yet. So now I'm turning on the BS meter, um, right. <laughs> your, gun, your machine gun may jam, right? Uh, that's not too hard to do. So that will be, uh, another example is not in, but will be pretty compelling. Well, maybe you're, you hope one of the squads will go berserk, meaning they'll suddenly get super morale with the downside that they will charge the enemy across the open, no matter what the circumstance, because they're pissed Johnson just died or whatever. That did happen. Um, and it often didn't end well, but sometimes it did. I just watched a Medal of Honor video on Netflix. There's a series called Medal of Honor. Go watch the first one. It's insane. About this guy was actually in the same division as our guys. Might even been in the same regiment, Cotton Baylor's. And the guy, basically, as a single leader, charges the enemy position to save his men. And he gets wounded three times. It gets there. They're so stunned, the Germans, they actually surrendered. They just can't believe this guy. He charged machine gun and everything. And all this happened. The guy actually was killed eventually because it went on from there. He got a Medal of Honor. But insane, right? So those kind of things do happen. So our hope is that each time you play, it will be significantly different. Now, I don't want to you know, wave my hands and cast magic spells and say it will be dramatically different. But we hope it will be significantly different. There's going to be a lot of fog of war which means units are hidden, just like an XCOM, till you see them. We do things somewhat different on that. Uh, but, you know, in the spirit of XCOM, so that that's probabilistic. You may or may not spot the enemy in the building. He may or may not fire on you as you get closer. So variation builds up. I, I would say, but now this is really waving my hands, if we succeed, my 2.0 version of Burden Command will be procedural. We will generate the maps. Whoa. We will generate the missions. We'll get more vicious on the permadeath because now it's essentially a World War II roguelike, but realistic. Um, you know, and you'll just have to, you can set your setting of how realistic or not it is in the rate of mortality for your officers, which is pretty high historically. Uh, and but we're not there. So this will be narrative. The strength of a narrative one is, of course, we can craft the narrative carefully, right? So that's where we have the writers. So each has its strengths. I've, I've played different games where sometimes I like the more narratively sharpen sometimes i like the procedural right yeah they both have their strengths and weaknesses oh oh one more example for you by yeah. the way now this game i should have brought up earlier they've been a nice friend of the project early on battle brothers have you played battle brothers yes very good they do a lot of actually i should give them more credit they do a great job in like psychology the battlefield and oh my god the monster just showed up and i think they do like what i'd call shock events um yeah yeah they're in the same spirit now they're procedural but i think their battlefield's fairly psychological so yeah, that, that's actually a good point. And then uh, also too, so for your your units that are on the tactical battlefield, so are you kind of like in command of an entire uh, a platoon, or is it like a company? And for each of those units, are they like rent or not randomly? Are they grouped out in like oh, you know, separate units? Excellent that you asked that question. Nobody's ever asked that question. Congratulations. So and I, I'm I'm really happy you did because. Uh, because I, I, we're, we're taking a risk here. So let me give you a little story of sort of the game design decisions we make. So 
So most squad games from board games, which there's a long heritage of and a lot of innovation on over the years, it goes on in the background. I put that up on my Twitter sometimes. You can see what's going on there. What they do for simplification is a given leader commands anybody in a certain number of hex range. It's just simple, right? So they don't try and enforce that Dearborn is in charge of first platoon. They just say, you know, whoever's near Dearborn, he's in command of. And I started the same way. I thought, well, you know, you got to keep it simple. Can't enforce organization. Now, platoon, by the way, I'm throwing fancy terms around. Platoon is three squads, squad 12 men. Uh, and again, typically, a uh, lieutenant's in charge of a platoon. A company is three platoons. So that's about three or four platoons. Uh, I think ours are three infantry platoons and one weapons platoon, which is a platoon with some machine guns and the mortars, which is pretty damn important. You'll want those guys. Uh, Lieutenant Stern. Anyway, don't ignore Lieutenant Stern. Take care of Lieutenant Stern. Anyway, um, so so basically I was just doing, hey, you're in charge of whoever's near. But Paul, to his credit, who's not a military tactical guy, though he's getting more that way, he's a narrative fantasy guy, writer, um, but very smart, very knowledgeable. Uh, he kept pushing me, you know, I really think you should do the platoons. You know, you should actually enforce Dearborn's only in charge of first platoon. I said, no, no, Paul, my wonderful greenhorn moments. No, Paul, really. We got to keep this simple for the player. Can't do that. I mean, you know, we'll lose half the audience the moment they see that kind of crap. So, but over time, I became convinced he was right. And so, because you know, if Lieutenant Dearborn is always in charge of these three squads, and that's a role-playing opportunity because those squads will gain experience. So Dearborn's gaining experience. He's rising his experience and his relationship of trust and respect to the men. Uh, how much they respect him. And so you may come to think of, you know, first platoon is my lead platoon. Those three squads, and we can name them, we hope, not yet, but we'll name the first squad of first platoon, you know, the killers, whatever you want, or Dearborn's finest, or whatever you decide. Um, you hopefully will bond not just to Dearborn, but to Dearborn and his men. And and the nice thing about computers is they can make this pretty, pretty transparent. So the way it works on the map is you click Dearborn, all his men light up, right? So that's not so complicated. And, and the guys in the air platoons don't light up. Now, one last fun thing is this also gave us, me an opportunity to make the captain important. So you are on the map as a captain. So uh, you have the privilege as a captain to be in charge of anybody in the company. So Dearborn can only be in charge of Dearborn's three squads. But you can be anywhere on the map basically pumping up, you know, like a cleric in a D&D game, so to speak. You're pump as a captain, you're pumping up that platoon. You're near them. You're giving them moral orders. Maybe you're actually doing the bolsters of morale. And so where you are with your command presence and where you're putting your energy and efforts, nothing's free. You always have to pay to do anything. Just like an XCOM, you only get so many actions. Mm -hmm. uh, you may be decisive in helping Dearborn succeed. Of course, maybe, you know, watch the second teaser. Maybe you screwed uh, Stern or something because you weren't over there when he needed you. So. Actually, we do enforce, and you can't order random other companies, but typically there won't be another company. So the battles are typically uh, company-sized. I mean, you've got your company, which will start you off small, scale you up, kind of like Civilization, the World War II version, right? You start with your one settler. We'll start you small, probably, I think it's one platoon, um, and we'll scale you up. Um, but you'll fight. That means you'll be in charge long-term of something like eh, 15 or 16 units. Enemy will, if he, he's on the defense, probably be a little smaller. If he's in the attack, might be a bit bigger. 
but it's not big. So it's not gonna turn into a game with tons and tons of units. We wanna keep it personal. All right. Sounds pretty solid and focused. Goodness. Okay. And then, uh, so in a, I'm going to have to go just a little sidetrack here. So like in a traditional, because it is a leadership RPG. So in a traditional RPG, uh, you know, you gain experience, you level up, and then you get perks. Is that going to be uh, kind of a mechanic in Burden of Command as well? The more you survive, the more experience you get, and you get perks? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's what I would describe as a light RPG. So uh, what do I mean by that? So we're not going, you know, full bore like uh, Divinity Original Sin or something. There will be uh, the core attributes of the RPG are experience. So you can think of it like, uh, for instance, Panzer General Panzer Corps. Your units and your leaders gain experience. It means they become more effective. Their morale goes up. They can take more. Uh, they, but then more interesting, there is trust, which is over time, are you, is a given leader earning the trust of his men so they'll follow him more? And that's based on things like, is your leader up there in the fight, which is, of course, dangerous for the leader and actually can make, I'll give you one example of, I think, an interesting leadership tension. So you want to be up with the men because then they'll trust you more. RPG rise. Oh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Hughes is, uh, Luke is up with me. Uh, so he's taking, putting his ass on the line, so I trust him more. I think he cares about our success. The downside is if you're up there with him, first, of course, you could get wounded or killed. Secondly, uh, you could take suppressive fire, just like them, meaning that German machine gun opens up on you bravely up front with first platoons, first squad. But guess what? You took suppression, too. Well, when you take suppression, you lose orders. So in XCOM terms, think of it like getting fewer actions. So your brilliant, heroic leadership from the front means you have just become a less effective lieutenant who's in charge, who can less command the battlefield. So the men are all impressed by your courage being up front. Uh, and you build trust. On their hand, now maybe you're getting them killed because you didn't have enough orders to command the situation and get the second squad uh, flanking. So it's tricky uh, being a good leader. Sometimes maybe you should stay back. But if you stay back too often, which will keep your orders together so you can command a situation, you know, you, they may not trust you. So you have to balance those things, and that's one of the RPG mechanisms, trust. Uh, there's another one, which is stress. And I think, think um, you know, Darkest Dungeon. You're gaining stress over time from being exposed to combat. You'll have to manage them. They won't go to taverns. Well, actually, in Naples, they might, uh, narratively. But you'll have to think about that off the battlefield in a light way. And then the last, really, I think, so there are a few more, but they're not many. There's like four or five core attributes so you know we're not doing dexterity and strength and wisdom it's a few but it's very combat relevant and then we'll probably have we haven't done this yet a thin skill tree you know so i'm going to focus this leader on more scouting or a spot or directing artillery which really matters uh or you know boosting the men's morale or what we'll, well it'll be thin but what will be interesting there alan the lead writer had a really i think brilliant idea which was we we see your leadership journey as a as a narrative arc to use a fancy writer term your story your leadership journey across the campaign where you will change your mindset what's a mindset mindset uh off the top of the head well remember we talked about uh, lieutenant spears the crazy guy mm -hmm. you know and band of brothers um he's clearly has the mindset of zealous <laughs> or zeal <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have to debate that. And he just reinforces that mindset through the whole game. Now, 
obviously that has some advantages. On the other hand, it might not be so good for you know uh, casualty rate. So uh, on the other hand, you might be want to be an empathetic guy, feels the pain of the men. Uh, so maybe you get better trust, but maybe you're a little bit less good at you know making the tough decisions that uh, require you to order them into difficult ones. You actually don't do as well with those orders. So we haven't done these yet, but we know what the mindsets will be. There'll be about seven of them. And your leadership journey is deciding what your mindsets are. Those will typically be decided in narrative moments, which the writers work on. So you'll face certain crises, many of them classic ones that young officers face as they learn about battle. And you'll decide who you are as a leader. Are you zealous? You know, are you compassionate? Are you pragmatic? Uh, you can bet, as you can imagine, they'll each have different pros and cons. And so we hope that at the end of your journey, you could actually, you know, at least talk about on social media. Maybe we'll give you a little more support. You can say, this was my leadership journey. You know, early on, I went heavy on zealous. But over time, I learned that compassion could help me too. Uh, but you can't get, have it all. Uh, we th do think that somebody like Winners and Banner Brothers, you know, a really impressive leader might probably have a mix. This stuff I'm waving my hands a lot on. We do have the vision. There's a dev blog called Crucibles, those moments where these mindsets are defined, and you can see some examples. So the writers have thought pretty hard. They've done the situations in the narrative. How that will play out and exactly what zealous means in a battlefield, we're not there yet. That's one of the things that's coming up. All right. My goodness. You guys have quite... A full plate, just trying to get all of this. <laughs> only re-simulate yeah. the personal. Very <laughs> I easy. mean, it sounds it sounds <laughs> just like a, a really nice, really nice narrative World War II game that we should have had all along. Really. Oh, thank you. That's a really gracious thing to say. You know what's wonderful about this is people said repeated like one of the reasons we have a lot of people volunteering the team, which has been really great, is uh, I say you know. As soon as I saw this game, I wish it had been the game I'd done. So that's why they're on helping us, especially a lot of the officers. Uh, but, you know, I give some good credit to things like uh, uh, Crusader Kings, you know, for pointing the way and some of these inspirations. In retrospect, it's not obvious, right? Man, yeah. most <laughs> games on war don't focus on the people. But Jesus, look at Band of Brothers. Millions of people watched it. People probably don't aren't military geeks. Why? Because it focuses on the human. So our hope is by focusing on the human, you know, we'll compel people as a game, as an experience, and also we'll connect you to the people who served in World War II. I mean, what what a mission statement. That's, that's just great. Just totally amazing. And uh, as one of the last questions that we're going to yeah. ask, uh, so if you have any advice through all that you've learned in your development career <laughs> thus far, uh, for those indie game developers that are out there that are waiting to pull the trigger on a project, a particular project that they may be working on or thinking yeah. about, what advice do you have to give to those guys? Thank you. Yeah, that, you know, who the hell am I to talk? Because my game isn't out successful yet. But at least, you know, I'm on the journey. So, and I've read a lot on this. I've listened to a lot of experts out there. So here's what my advice. Some of it is what most devs say. Some of it maybe is a little different. So one thing is, you know, be careful about, have a focus. Do the elevator pitch. Boil it down to one word or one phrase. Uh, some game designers call that the hook, like uh, the guy, the guy who did the dancing uh, crypt, the crypt of the necromancer has a great video out there, and he says, decide what your hook is. So that's what I call, you know, your, your elevator pitch. That's really important. If you don't know what your hook is, you're not going to have a successful game unless you know you're blind lucky. Secondly, that hook 
should be market focused. So we're no longer in a world where you can just come out with a good game. You know, there are a lot of good games out there. It's brutal. What is it now? I don't know. Several thousand? Maybe it's crazy, like 5,000. Something obscene. Number of games a month uh, coming out on Steam. Uh, we're, by the way, I'm very happy to say we just made the uh, most wishlisted list on Steam. So we're really excited. Uh, but command Steam. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't chance. Go there, wishlist it. I wonder why I said that. It does help us, by the way, because it increases our showing up on search engines. So that's an example of what you got to know as an indie, right? You want those wish lists because otherwise you're invisible. So seven or eight years ago, you could do a good game. Now you can't. So you got to know that hook, and hook isn't just good. It's got to be distinctive. So burden of command, whether it's successful or not, is distinctive. There's no leadership World War II or no leadership RPG out there. So it's easy to say what's distinctive. So that's number one, distinctive hook. Uh, number two is, you know, this one is, oh, yeah, I'll try to say one thing that's a little different from what people say. I already made the point about business focus. So my background is research, so R&D. So I had to make a career out of trying to be innovative. So there's a trick to being innovative. One of the tricks about being innovative is cheat. And the cheat, you notice I'm a big cheater. Uh, the cheat is go look at something different than what is usually looked at. So if you want, for instance, I'll make one up on the spur of the moment. If I were going to go do a dungeon game, maybe I'd go look at anthropology and how uh, primitive tribes handled uh, stress around their gods, if such a thing existed. Or, you know, rituals of Amazonian tribes and how they view magic. I'd start from there, and I wouldn't start from what did D&D do. Uh, another example would be, you know, I'm going to make a game on, uh, I don't know, let's make something up. Um, I'm looking out the window at the houses. Okay, so now I'm taking something from left field. I'm going to make a game about houses, RPG about houses. Each, turns out every house actually has a secret personality and they care about their family, some of them darkly, some of them positively. And your job in the game is to run the house characters to make happy or miserable families, right? Nightmare on whatever street or happy, you know, family. So that's never, game's never been done before. How do I invent that? I cheated. I looked out the window, I stared at something, I thought, how do I make that a game? So my advice to people who want to be distinctive, because you got to have a hook, is look at something different. Right, go to the bookstore or go to uh, YouTube, watch some odd video you would never watch and say, hey, how can I make that political debate a game? Hey, how can I make that gardening game? I mean, video, a game. Easy way to start. Now, making it a good game is hard, but now you've got something that's distinctive. All right. Well, thank you so much, Luke, for uh, talking about Burden of Command. I, I absolutely loved it just to hear a lot more about what's going on behind the scenes, expanding all the different mechanics that you have in the game, something to really look forward to and actually to get excited about. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Ray. It's a privilege. And, you know, after all these years, I can say I'm still excited about it. So uh, I hope you got that today. Come, I run our uh, Twitter account. So come by and say hi. I love chatting. The community it keeps me grounded. All right, great. And then where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, at huh, thank you. They make all these <laughs> wonderful claims about marketing them, you know, fall on my face. At burden of command, capitalize the B and E O and the C. We're also uh, on Facebook, and I think use the same term. And uh, you know, come say hi. Uh, I'd love, right, to, then, love to meet you. All right. Also, too, uh, what is your website too to look into uh, burden of command? This will shock you. It's burdenofcommand.com. Uh, we work pretty hard on it, so you can really see the team. Please go look at the team. It's just amazing 
group of people. I'm humbled every time I look at it. There are a lot of dev blogs in there. We've also put them on the Steam page, uh, and you can go and see the dev blogs there. And there's a community, small community there right now. Uh, I, by the way, I will brag about the community on uh, Twitter. We have historians on it. We have writers. We have gamers. We have game designers. For instance, uh, I like. I'm gonna, you know, pump up the game because I got to. We have the designer of RimWorld following us. I mean, man, what a privilege! You know, mm. uh, the guy from Darkest Dungeon. Uh, some more. Uh, so, and my prime thing makes me happiest is that yeah, I'm dropping names because we need attention, like every other guy. Chris Avalon was our first follower. <laughs> of course, we were paying at the time, so there might have been a connection. But, <laughs> but seriously, uh, you know, it's a really interesting group of people. There are artists on it. Uh, and musicians, I lose track. So it's just really cool people. So I hope you'll come join us. All right. Bye. We sure will. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for joining us today on Real Dudes Podcast. And as always, have a red day. Thank you, Real Dudes, the coolest members of our community.